the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome. We're always glad when you join us for the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. We do it every weekend on WTLN. That's AM 950 in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Booming across the I-4 corridor. Uh, Jeff Sennis engineers our show each week, and Andrew Herdliska produces it. And author Philip Yancey is with us from his home in Colorado. Really glad that he's with us. His book with Zondervan is a must-read. It's called The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? Phil, I'm glad you can join me. How you doing? I'm doing well, and I'm looking out a frozen lake covered with snow. Very different than probably what you see in Orlando, Pat. <laughs> You've had quite a winter, haven't you? We have. We've finally gotten a good snow winter. The ski areas are quite excited, and uh, unlike California, we're not in a drought situation, so everybody's happy in Colorado. Phil, you break your new book down into uh, five different parts And the first question you ask is, where is God? Boy, people ask that one a lot, don't they? They do. And in fact, the very first book I wrote, this was in 1976, 1977, was Where is God When It Hurts? And I wrote that because it was a stumbling block to my faith, as it is to many people. I was a Christian, but I couldn't understand why some of these bad things happened. So I wrote this book, and when I... When I did, I had no idea that I would be called over the years into all sorts of situations where that question was right at the forefront. And as I looked back on 2012, three places stood out, very different places, but each one I was asked to speak on that topic. One was in Japan at the one-year anniversary of the tsunami. There was a nationwide prayer meeting, and then we spent a week in the affected area, the devastated area. Then in the fall, that same year, 2012, I went to Sarajevo and heard horror stories of the war that took place there back in the 90s. And then the last one, which was really the most difficult and horrible one, was in Newtown, Connecticut, where I was asked to come and speak to the community there on that topic, where is God when it hurts, after the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School. So I decided, okay, it's been 35 years since I wrote my book, and I've learned a few things over the years, especially from the people who have gone through tragedy, and it's time to do an update, time to let them tell their stories, things that they have learned that may help others as we go through our own difficult times. What was your experience like in Connecticut? When I first got that call, it was from a friend I'd known for many years, and he was a pastor of one of the largest churches in the area, when I first got that call, I was I was terrified. What am I going to say to these parents who, one morning, kiss their children goodbye, put them on a school bus, and then later got a call and uh, learned that those children were brutally murdered? And how, how could I bring any words of comfort and hope to them? It was a huge challenge, and yet I knew I, I needed to go. As it happened, Pat, I I happened to be reading a bunch of books by the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, for for another article. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized we Christians really do have words of comfort and hope to offer. And I I realized there's, there's one question that's harder, actually, than where is God when it hurts, and that's where is no God when it hurts. Because I was reading these atheists, and they were saying things like, we live in a world of blind, pitiless indifference. We're just a a product of random chance, never to be repeated. And I noticed 
that that week, the New York Times wasn't asking new atheists to to write their op-ed pages. They were turning to pastors, priests, and rabbis. That's what we do after tragedy, after the Boston Marathon bombings, after September 11, 2001. And so I could stand before the grieving community in Newtown and say, first of all, the, the grief that you feel, the outrage that you feel against this evil is just a small picture of what God feels. God is far less satisfied with this planet than you are, and God has promised to do something about it. We know how God feels because God gave us a face, the face of Jesus. And if you want to know what God is going through right now, just follow Jesus around and see how he responds to a widow who's lost her only son or even a, a Roman soldier whose servant has fallen ill. The face that God gave us is streaked with tears. And, and that's not the end of the story, though. Before he left, Jesus said, I am going away to prepare a place for you. And he describes that place. We know the Bible's description. It's a place without tears, without death, without suffering. And so I could stand in front of those parents and say, your son, your daughter, they're safe. They're safe in the loving arms of God. This is the promise that we have. And I realize that we Christians do have a word of comfort and hope to offer. Not everybody believes it, but but we do believe it, and we cling to it. And believe me, at such a time like that, uh, actually, the parents I talked to, they weren't so concerned with the question, where is God when it hurts? They were more concerned with the question, will I ever see my son or daughter again? Mm-hmm. And that's a promise that we have uh, that is illustrated by Jesus' own resurrection. He went through death, he went through the suffering, and yet it came out on the other side, and this promise, he'll lead us to that other side. In your book, uh, this little paragraph, Phil, children's television personality Fred Rogers said that when he was a little boy and heard about an accident or natural disaster, his mother would tell him, look for the helpers, Fred. Whenever something terrible happens, there are always people who hurry to help. I I like that little piece. Yeah, that was a comfort to me. Somebody sent that to me when I was preparing for the Newtown experience, and I realized, uh, especially for children, that can be such a comforting thing because it's easy to get all all obsessed with the tragedy that's going on. And Fred's mother very wisely said, yeah, these are hard things, but whenever hard things happen, there are actually people who respond. I've been to some of these places, Virginia Tech and Mumbai, the night of the bombings there, and and... I I like that advice. I remember watching coverage of the Boston Marathon bombing. There was another time when the whole nation is just fixated on on this one dark scene for several days, as it turned out, when they're trying to track down who did it. And a, a fact that came out when I was watching just staggered me, and that is those runners who had run more than 26 miles, and I've run a marathon, and I know what that's like, when they reached the finish line and saw what had happened, they kept running to local hospitals to donate blood. And that just staggers me. Mm. I mean, I I was really walking after 26 miles. I wasn't thinking of donating blood. But America is a place where there are helpers. I was in Manhattan just a week or so after September 11, and to see the tractor trailers that came from Oregon, Washington, all the way across the United States, full of supplies, blankets, food, construction people who quit their jobs to come over and help out. Or in New Orleans, even today, over weekends, you're going to find churches from Dallas and, and Baton Rouge, places like that, who will send crews down to keep that rebuilding process going on long after the federal government signed off on New Orleans from Hurricane Katrina. And that's one of my messages to the church. Uh, That question, where is God when it hurts? You could almost answer that by saying, where is the church when it hurts? And what I've learned is that when I go to these places, like Japan, wherever I go, there are people who are showing God's love there. In Japan, there were people from Samaritan's Purse who had quit their jobs, and moved to Japan. They were living in these tiny little places, temporary housing, and they were spending all day building houses for Japanese people who they didn't know. They couldn't even communicate with them, couldn't speak language. And right at the end, 
before turning over their house, completely rebuilt, they would say, could, could we do some, one thing? Could we pray a blessing on this house? And they weren't there to proselytize. You know, they weren't there to convert. They were there to show the love of God whom, whom they followed. So I, I think that little phrase that Fred Rogers' mother came up with is a beautiful phrase, look for the helpers. Don't get so obsessed with the dark side that you don't see the, the light shining in the midst of the darkness. Philip Yancey is our guest. The book is The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? We've got more with Phil Yancey right after this. Just a reminder, you're listening to the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. It's WTLN, AM 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Dr. Robert Burke, Mayo Clinic trained, board certified cardiologist with a message to all men over 30. Man boobs. Well, it's not the clinical term, but it's what my male patients call it. If you're storing fat around your chest, stomach, and love handles, it's not healthy, and chances are it's not your fault. It could be your hormones. As men age, our bodies produce estrogen, a female hormone that can cause flabby chests and bellies, love handles, weak muscle tone, lower energy, and poor sexual performance. I tell my patients try a regimen before considering shots, patches, and drugs. I formulate a regimen to power up natural testosterone. More importantly, it helps slow estrogen to help you regain that youthful, muscle-toned guy you used to be. Try a 30-day supply absolutely free. Just pay shipping and handling. Get your free 30-day supply now at RepairLowT.com or call 1-800-777-9291. 800-777-9291. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Regimen is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We thought we were doing the right thing. I mean, why go out and hire professionals? We have people right here in the congregation who have yeah. experience in construction. That's right. I mean, Elder Jones was a carpenter for over 50 years. <laughs> but boy, were we wrong. You know, I thought I knew drywall. I thought I knew about plumbing. And we're supposed to know all the rules and regulations and permits and even the laws that are required to just renovate our own fellowship hall. Now we're really in hot water, too, with our local government. And we have to start all over again. Every day in Central Florida, well-meaning local churches run afoul of local government regulations for construction. The legal process for church construction projects is complex. Let the Nemo Group assist you with this complicated legal process. The Nemo Group is a Christian construction company. The Nemo Group specializes in church renovation and addition projects. The Nemo Group will help your congregation build a wall of protection that will ensure your renovation or add-on is safe, successful, and legal. Call 407-504-6966 or visit NemoGroup.com today. That's N-Y-M-O Group.com. The Nemo Group is a member of the Orlando Times Network. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Author Philip Yancey is with us. We're talking about his book, The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? Uh, Phil, part one, where is God? Now I want you to talk about part two. I want to know why. What What do you say there? Yeah, we all want to know why, don't we? And what I say is I don't know why. <laughs> I, uh, I've looked at every passage in the Bible I can find on on why bad things happen. And I, I go back to the book of Job, because if anybody deserved an answer to that question, it was Job. There was this good man, he'd not, he'd not done anything wrong, he's the most righteous man on earth, the, the Bible tells us. And at the end, after he went through all this stuff, God does appear. And it's, it's the longest single speech by God in the Bible. Interestingly, God avoids the why question. He basically tells Job, you couldn't possibly understand. There's stuff... You just couldn't grasp, and Job recognizes that. He said, I spoke of things I, I could not possibly know, and kind of apologized to God. And then I go to the New Testament, I look at Jesus, and and when he's with someone who's, say, born blind or paralyzed or in a tragedy where a tower fell down on him, very often the Pharisees or his own disciples would say, why did this happen? Why those people? And Jesus always deflects that question. He never explains. He, he basically says, that's not for you to figure out. What is for you to figure out is, would you be ready if something like this happened to you? And now that it's happened, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to trust or turn away from God? 
And that's the one thing we can't control. You know, when something happens, you can't go back and undo it. You have an, ac- an accident with a car, you so much want to rewind that tape, and you can't do it. The car is still smashed. The question is, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond with trust in God that even though you can't understand it, there there is a plan that does make sense, or are you going to turn away? And so I just frankly admit, I don't know the answer to that question, why. And I, I think in, in many ways for people, it's, it's a dead end. Now I want you to talk about the third part, when God overslept. <laughs> what, what, is, uh, what does that mean, Phil? When God overslept, well, that came, that's a quote from um, a person who lived through the, the siege of Sarajevo. This is the war in the, in the Balkans back in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And this, the city was surrounded by hills, and the, the troops, the, the Serbian troops came set up positions on those hills and just started bombing, they figured out an average of 329 mortar shells a day and rockets fell on that town. So the people down there, they had no way out. The roads were cut off. No planes were flying. Uh, They had no electricity. They had no heat. It's a cold place. They had the Winter Olympics there. And for four years, very little food, the same kind of bland food that they would get in from the United Nations, a little rice, pasta, that, that's all they had. And this person describing that time for me said, it just seemed like God overslept. Mm. And I, I, I'm sure that's, that's true for people who live through a war, you know, people in Syria right now, or people who live through World War II in Europe. I'm sure they say, God, are you, are you there? Are you there? And... There are so many things we would want God to intervene directly, but for whatever reason, God has chosen pretty much to turn over history to us. I mean, God is working through the, His community, His people, the kingdom of God. God is not going to automatically intervene whenever something bad happens, whenever there's a bad guy head of a country, whenever there's a war going on. We We kind of want God to do that, but... That's not the way God is acting. What he seems to prefer watching us do in a kind of our bumbling, ineffective way what God could do with a snap of his fingers. Hmm. Uh, God seems to take pleasure in watching watching us do what we can. That, that's the way the world works. In fact, he, he indicates that's what he had in mind from the very beginning, not to do things for himself. What does he have to prove? but rather to let us show the rest of the world the way to live. That's what we're called to do. I want you to talk about the fourth part, Phil. Healing evil, you call it. Mm. Yes, and that is the the story of, of Newtown, Connecticut. Um, I, I was just watching today, actually, there's a, there's a YouTube video of a woman, a, a Mennonite woman in Winnipeg, Canada, Manitoba, whose daughter was kidnapped, and it was the largest manhunt in Winnipeg history. Hundreds of policemen combing the area, trying to find the daughter. Eventually they found her. She had been tied up and left in a shed out in the winter and froze to death. Mm. And 22 years later, they found the perpetrator. Well, this woman was was giving a talk on how she had moved toward healing, toward uh, forgiveness even, that's the word she used. And she talked about those two things that were fighting inside her, justice and love. And most of the time, justice was winning out. She wanted to kill this guy. She wanted to get revenge and then she realized that wouldn't take care of her daughter's death. You know, another death doesn't cancel out uh, the previous death. And ultimately she got to the place where love won out over justice. Well, that woman had a remarkable impact on a man named Malcolm Gladwell. Really? Malcolm? Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell is, as you know, a best-selling author. He wrote books like Blink and The Tipping Point. And... He had been raised Mennonite, but moved away from his faith. 
in the process of writing his most recent book on David and Goliath, he interviewed this woman, Wilma Dirksen, and he came back to faith uh, because he, he, he just ran into this power that he could not explain, this power of forgiveness, this power of love. And he said, I, you know, here I am in New York and the sophisticated world, and I've, I've not seen something like this, and I can't explain it. It's a supernatural power, and it brought him back to God. Really? Wow. And to me, that, that is the story of healing evil, isn't it? Mm. I mean, here's this thing that, uh, that should result in hardness and revenge and bitterness, and instead the opposite happens. I, I think of the story of Joseph. Yeah, Joseph had the right for revenge, too, and his brothers left him for dead. You know, they sold him as a slave, and then they go through all these different uh, experiences where he's falsely accused, put in prison. And then finally, he works his way to the top, and he, he's with his brothers. He doesn't say, kill them all! They, he's, he, he, it takes him a while, but he learns to forgive them. And at the end of the book, it says, God, that uh, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm. And, and that's the message that we believe as Christians. We don't have the promise that bad things aren't going to happen to us. They, they certainly are. We don't get a free ride here. We don't get an exemption. But we do have the promise, and I'll, I'll quote Dallas Willard here, we have the promise that nothing irredeemable can happen to us, that nothing that God can't somehow get good out of. I, I like to think of God as a great recycler. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, I take my junk, my, my old electronic computer that doesn't work anymore, I take it down to this recycling place, and they send it somewhere where people take apart all the little good things in it, pieces of gold and rare earth, and they remake them into a tiny little smartphone that's probably smarter than my original computer. And, that, and that's what God does. He takes the bad stuff that happens and somehow works good out of it, and that's that's what we, we cling to as Christians, that faith. Philip, you um, end your book with a title called Three Extreme Tests. And I, and I love this part, part five. Uh, can you talk about that closing and how you ended the book? I can, yes. I, I, I went back to, uh, to the question I started with, where is God when it hurts? And the, the three tests were the places that I've mentioned here, uh, Japan, the tsunami, and Sarajevo, this human evil war, and then Newtown, Connecticut, much smaller scale, but more horrible in a way. And I went back and asked that question again, where is God when it hurts? And this is my answer. Uh, The first answer is, God is on the side of the sufferer. Mm. It's easy for people to think when something bad happens, God's against me, God did it, God's punishing me. And Frankly, Pat, uh, as you know, sometimes the Church does do that to people. We, I've taught, interviewed many people who say the Church actually made it worse for me. I'm trying to get well, and they come in and just make me feel worse. Hmm. And uh, I, I have learned over the years that God is on the side of the sufferer, not against. That's the first place, where is God when it hurts? The second place is, is that God is in the Church. And we're called to be the ambassadors of comfort, as it were, the ministers of comfort and hope. Um, and, and one of the things that, that actually the Church has done pretty well over the centuries is that we've, we've reached out to the poor, to the weak, to the vulnerable. There was a time in the, in the Middle Ages when Benedictines ran 37,000 hospitals for the sick. Mm. In, in this dark, you know, the dark ages when we, we think nothing good was happening, there was actually a lot of good happening. 37,000. Why? Because where is the church when it hurts? That's one of the things we're called to do. And then the third place, which I've mentioned, is, is that uh, Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a home for you. That God isn't going to let this planet end with evil triumphing. God is going to find a way to restore the planet to his original design. And, the, you know, the, the best clue we have into that is what happened to Jesus. Um, Jesus understood suffering. Jesus understood pain. He understood what it's like to be a human being, the kinds of things we go through. And the worst thing in human history happened to Jesus. Here's a, God's own son who had done nothing wrong, and yet he was, he was cruelly executed. But that 
that's a day that we look back on. We don't call it Dark Friday, Sad Friday, Black Friday, Tragic Friday. We call it Good Friday. Mm. That's the example of God recycling, isn't it? Here, here's the worst thing that could happen, and yet God turned it into the best thing. Mm. And he gave us a clue. That's what he wants to do with the whole planet. Oh, my goodness, you look at history, you look at any, any day's newspaper, and you can see what a mess we're in down here. And yet God has promised to, to remake us, to remake the planet, and to make it new again. That's the hope that we cling to. And Jesus' story is, is the, the brightest clue we have to what God can do with something bad that happens. The question <clears throat> that never goes away, why? Philip Yancey, the author, uh, Zondervan, the publisher, and I'm so glad that he can join us. Phil, uh, I need to ask you about our daily bread, uh, mm-hmm. which I get every month and a couple of times a month. There you are writing your thoughts for that particular day. Uh, right. t- tell me about that. I'm a, I'm a big Our Daily Bread fan and a big fan of your little essays. Uh, I-, I want you to give me some thoughts on that. Well, they come out of uh, a group called RBC Ministries, which is used to be Radio Bible Class, and they also run a, a regular radio program. I've met with the folks in Grand Rapids. I've been on the on the radio program with them, and they're just solid, good people. And they have found this this little formula in our daily bread. Here we're we're living in a busy world. People don't have a lot of time, and so they've. They've worked it down to, I think it's like 200 words, <laughs> and they go all over the place and find writers that they uh, are, that are part of their stable, and it includes a, a scripture passage, it includes a poem usually, and I, I tell you, <laughs> Pat, you may have heard the quote from uh, Mark Twain that, uh, I'm sorry this letter is so long, I didn't have time to write a short one. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it it could be easier to write a thousand-word essay than a little 200-word essay. And uh, what they found in a a visual world like this, that's what people need. And I love being associated with them. I hear from prisoners who don't get a lot of material, but they get that there. I think it's distributed free. They're just very—it's a very generous organization with a great history. And one time I heard that they have something like eight million of those things distributed around the world. Wow, Phil, a million thanks. <clears throat> it's been a great half hour, and congratulations on a really important book. Well, thank you for allowing me to talk about it, and and I hope it does bring some comfort because we all go through tough times. Philip Yancey, our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour, WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Everybody is Pete Paquette, your morning host here at the new 950 WTLN. And I'd like to welcome back a computer program here on the weekends, very familiar to our listeners. It's Tech Talk and more, Saturday afternoons at 4, from Palm Tree Computer Systems and Jinx IT. They are the experts on any problem you might be having, downloads, uploads, software, hardware. You've got questions? These experts have the answers. And you never know when you could win something pretty cool. It's Tech Talk and more, now Saturday afternoons at 4, on the new 950 WTLN and WTLN.com. Are you a mentor of young pastors? Hi, Bill Files here. You've heard me talk about half-price tuition. Now we have a great new program where pastors seeking a master's degree in divinity, biblical studies, or theology can purchase tuition to seminary in Central Florida at half price. No catch, no kidding. If you or someone you mentor could benefit from our half-price tuition program for master's degree programs in seminary, I hope you'll give me a call, 407-618-1760. Or visit our website, WTLN.com, and click on Amazing Radio Deals. Master's degrees in divinity, biblical studies, or theology at seminary in Central Florida at half price. Tell a friend about this incredible opportunity for first-year master's degree students. Half-price tuition, now for seminary. Financing is now available for seminary half-price tuition. Go to AmazingRadioDeals.com for details. Hi, I'm Barbara Sandbeck, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God. 
You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m. Can't catch the whole broadcast? Visit our podcast on the web 24-7 on WTLN.com. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Philip Yancey, our guest in that first half hour from his home in Colorado, talking about his new book, The Question That Never Goes Away Why? We go from Colorado to London, Ontario. Charles Stone is the senior pastor of West Park Church in London, Ontario. Uh, we're going to talk uh, today about his book, People Pleasing Pastors. Charles, nice of you to join me. I hope you're doing well. Oh, great to be with you, Pat. Charles is senior pastor of West Park Church in London, uh, the founder of Stonewell Ministries, where he coaches pastors and church leaders. Uh, tell me about your new book and why it was important to write it. Well, Pat, uh, over the years, I've been in ministry over 33 years, and Probably in the last five to ten years, I realized there was this, what I would call an insidious uncomfortableness in my soul. And I began to realize that um, I was a, when I call myself, a recovering people pleaser. I saw some of these qualities in my life, and it wasn't a very pretty picture. I think it affected the uh, impact of my kingdom kingdom work. And so it that stirred me to begin doing some research and looking into the subject that you don't hear a whole lot, but it is quite, quite prevalent, uh, not only among pastors, but I think it's probably true among leaders uh, across the board. So my life experience, some realizations, and some recent research, that prompted me to write the book. It's been a, been a good journey. Tell me about your relationship with LifeWay Research and the surveying that you did. What, what, what came from all of that? Yes, uh, LifeWay is one of the most respected research organizations. They really focus on kind of what's, what's going on in the, in the Christian world, Christian thinking, as well as the secular world, how the secular world views the Christian world. And I, I hired them as part of their, some of their research projects they do, do every year to ask some questions of pastors. And this first phase of the research, actually there were probably 2,300 pastors I I researched the first phase was around a thousand that LifeWay did, and they asked. One of the the fundamental finding was that seventy nine percent of pastors at, and, and ministry leaders at some level self admit that they are people pleasers, and that was the first piece of information that really like shocked me. Like, wow, this is a significant issue. But also, I did a second piece through an organization called Caltrics, which is one of the most well-known online research organizations. We looked at 1,300 pastors there, asked some of the same questions. LifeWay was uh, a real person asking someone, a pastor, questions over the phone. The online version was you know, a pastor filling out an online uh, inventory. In that survey, it revealed 91% of pastors self-admitted to being people-pleasers at some, at some level. And what was most shocking, Pat, was in my online survey, we provided one field where a pastor could share uh, a personal story about people-pleasing his ministry. After the research was done, collecting all those stories, I had 100 pages, single-spaced pages of stories, some of them just heartbreaking. So you have the empirical data, but also the narrative, the story, and wow, it was really it was uh, it was a real eye opener to me in re- realizing that it wasn't just an issue that I had dealt with early on in my ministry, but what many pastors today still deal with. What did you find out, Charles, repeatedly that people pleasing pastors do? What are their big struggles? What goes on? What happens here? Well, I I think it's probably good, Pat, for me to differentiate the difference between appropriate people pleasing and unhealthy people pleasing. Okay. Yep. The scriptures say that we're supposed to love as Christ loved. We're supposed to serve people. And when we love people and serve people and treat them with kindness and grace, that's going to please them. And everybody likes to be treated right. So that it's important to, to note that differentiation. But what I found on the other end was oftentimes people please it. It's not this uh, top of the brain like, oh, what I'm doing right now, I'm being a people pleaser. It's not that. It's very, very subtle. And 
through the research and also I incorporated some neuroscience insights about how the brain works is I, I think probably one of the, the biggest, uh, I guess I could say, motivators behind people pleasing is how we deal with our anxiety. And anxiety is kind of a general term for those unpleasant emotions. We don't like them. We always want to feel good. So what we do sometimes, and I think this is kind of across the board, in the context of ministry, and I use myself as an example, recently someone came up to me and gave me like 30 pages of copies of uh, some ministry that they wanted me to read. They handed it to me. Well, the people pleaser would have said, okay, great, sure. And either they do it and they realize I just cost myself two hours of time, or they subtly lie, like I'm not really going to do it. But as I've learned, what I did in this case was, well, thank you so much. I have probably a dozen books people have given me, and I may or may not be able to get to that. So what a people pleaser does, inadvertently, I think even unconsciously, tries to, because this anxiety, we don't want someone to, you know, frown at us or look disappointed, and because the brain is a social brain and it, it can interpret uh, disapproval as rejection. We don't like rejection. Instead of acting upon that in an unhealthy way of trying to dampen that feeling of anxiety, I finding myself be more bold, like I did with the person who handed me all those things to read. So I found out that it's a subtle kind of a thing to bring a smile to somebody's face to avoid a potential conflict, and it takes it, it, it's evident in all kinds of leadership scenarios. Charles Stone is our guest. His book is called People-Pleasing Pastors. A little conflict avoidance here, a little lack of good boundaries there. What's the harm? Uh, how, how do you respond to that question? Yeah. Well, I, I can speak my personal experience, uh, also from the, the personal stories that I read. I believe that if, if a, a pastor, and really any leader, you know, you're, you're a leader of an organization. I think it's true whether it's in a, a church or a, uh, an organization like the Orlando Magic or if it's a business world like IBM, say. If, if a leader, especially a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, wants to uh, fulfill the mandate God has given him or her in their particular realm, oftentimes that's going to go against what others want you to do. And if we, instead of following God's mandate, we yield to the pressure of others, I think we miss God's best. So I think kingdom work is impacted, but I also think personal well-being is as well. Because I know in my past, when I have said yes to something like, oh, doggone it, I shouldn't have done that, I'm angry at myself. Mm. I'm mad at myself. And the more I do that, I create these patterns. And again, going back to how God wired our brain, when we keep doing something over and over again, we develop this muscle memory, we develop this, these mental tracks in our brain that we aren't even thinking about it. it. It perpetuates an unhealthy way of leading, and I think an unhealthy way of really taking care of ourselves and, and our emotional well-being and our spiritual life as well. So a lot of, lot of downsides for, for being an unhealthy people-pleaser. I want you to expand on this statement. In an effort to keep all parties content, or at least mollified, the people-pleasing pastor can begin to suffer from a lack of confidence lose his vision for the church, cause the very church division they're trying to avoid, or even burn out and quit the ministry, over time the cost of constant people-pleasing can be quite high. Yeah. Well, I actually, some of those statements there were uh, some of the narrative statements I saw in these anonymous uh, stories these pastors shared, that some of these, these guys who loved God, they started out in ministry, and they believed God's call was on their life. And suddenly, this people-pleasing began to enter in, and they knew deep in their soul, maybe even not at a conscious level, something was just not right. And I read, uh, Pat, I read story after story after story how, by people-pleasing, the inevitable really happened. Instead of standing up, let's say to someone who's a, uh, a divisive person in the church, instead of standing up to them, the inevitable happened. That person ended up dividing the church. Instead of facing the heat of the moment in grace, with firm courage saying no to that uh, divisive person could have stopped it right then. And also read stories about uh, pastors who they had their vision, but yet for whatever reason, their lack of courage, lack of understanding, and their people-pleasing, they didn't stay true to the mission God had called them to, and their soul died. It just shriveled up. And uh, several of these stories were like, I'm out of ministry. 
I'm never going to get back in again. And my first, my, my second book, uh, that I did some research as well, there are a high number of pastors that are leading the ministry today, not because of immorality. Sure, that's the case in a few, but they just get burned out because their passion to uh, fulfill God's mandate on their life has been squelched, sometimes by circumstances beyond their control, but oftentimes because we've yielded to put the smile on the face of the person rather than the smile on the face of God, which Scripture tells us our ultimate goal is to please Him. I can picture this scene, Charles, a young pastor coming in, maybe first church, uh, board members that have been there forever, uh, key citizens in that community, business leaders, deep roots, certain wealth, very confident, you know, very strong-willed, and uh, where they can just overpower that young pastor uh, and just crush the guy. Yeah. I mean, can you see that scene? Does that happen a lot? Oh, ab- absolutely. And I've been here in uh, this, this church for about five months, and one of the best things that helped me was um, there's a book called Your First 90 Days, and there are two or three books on there that basically help you when you're onboarding a new, in a new ministry. I intentionally created a six-month plan, and part of that plan was to really learn the culture, not so much the tactics of the current church, but learning the culture, building relationships, and gaining trust. And as a young pastor myself years ago, I didn't realize how important it was to do some of those kinds of things rather than coming in and and, uh, intentionally or unintentionally creating more conflict with some of these very influential people. But that scenario has played out over and over and over again. And the advice I would give a young pastor is get a clear picture, kind of understand what the true culture, what are the politics of the church. Build relationships with those people. Don't go in like a, a gangbuster, kind of tearing everything up. You can still be collaborative without being a people pleaser, recognizing that as you build time and build trust, then you can begin to make some of those moves, and hopefully you have those key power and influencers on your side and will help promote but the mandate God's given you. I want you to uh, do a little opening, and then we're going to plow in in the last 10 minutes after the break, Charles, about this acronym uh, that you've come up with, PRESENT, P-R-E-S-E-N-T. Uh, what, what is that acronym about? Yeah, it, it, uh, it's kind of a contrast between a pleaser leader and then I call a present leader, P-R-E-S-E-N-T, where a leader is truly present in the moment. They're present for those they serve. They're present for their leaders. and They're present for, for the Lord. And what I did was I built this acronym around these principles, these seven principles that I, that I unpacked that I think is really the solution to people-pleasing. And uh, we definitely want to get into that uh, after the break. In the meantime, uh, before we get to the break, Phil, Charles, I want you to talk about a book that uh, you wrote a while back. Fascinating title, Five Ministry Killers (laughs) and and How to Defeat Them. Mm -hmm. What, what, What was that book about? Well, this was my actually my second book, and I have a real heart for leaders and pastors, and did some research as well. Uh, with LifeWay, and discern through that research that there were some real consistent ministry decisions that we make, uh, killers that can rob the soul. And actually, if I if I had to, uh, I would put people pleasing in there now since I've done this this research. But it really unpacked some of these killers that can suck the life out of, uh, of a pastor, and then provided some practical advice on what are some things you can do to avoid or. Uh, mitigate these killers, uh, killers in, in your in your marriage or in your ministry. So that was really the kind of gist of it. Do you remember a killer or two that comes off the top of your head? Yeah, I think one or two of them. One of them was uh, when in the research we asked, kind of determining what the killers were. Very, very few pa- pastors put down stress on their family, but the reality is, it is. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that. Uh, affects a pastor if he's not there for his kids, there for his wife, that it's a tremendous stress. So it was one of those things that, that, that showed up like a sore thumb because it wasn't reflected. Mm. An- another one of the killers was 
uh, not really owning and facing the emotions that I feel about ministry. You know, we always if we have these emotions, and these emotions come, it's a biochemical thing that comes into our lives. It's what, what we do with them and how we process them. Charles Stone is our guest. We've got more with him right after this. Stay with us. It's the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour on WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Hi, this is Pastor Johnny with The Vision, and this is Little Seeds of Faith. Reading today out of the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 7, reads like this. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, amazing. The peace of God. The peace that Jesus said that he would leave us. It surpasses another translation says that it transcends everything. All understanding. It guards our hearts. It guards our minds. It gives us peace in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Think about it. You've been listening to Little Seeds of Faith, the media ministry of New Vision Church. Now with a new service time, 11 a.m. Sunday morning. Send your support to 5480 Hal Branch Road in Winter Park, 32792. Or call 407-233-6550. You can also reach them on Facebook at The Vision with Pastor Johnny and Vic. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 950 WTLN. If you miss the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace, Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 950 WTLN. TLN. Right now until March 18th, the flooring experts at Lumber Liquidators have huge deals going to fit any taste or budget, like donor oak laminate for an amazing 39 cents a square foot, beautiful carbonized bamboo for just $139, even spectacular Bellawood pre-finished Bolivian rosewood for an incredible $299 a square foot. Pick up free samples at hundreds of stores nationwide, plus special financing available and easy professional installation or expert advice for DIYers. But hurry, this sale ends March 18th. Visit LumberLiquidators.com to find a store near you. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Charles Stone is the senior pastor of West Park Church in London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, his new book is out called People Pleasing Pastors Avoiding the Pitfalls of Approval Motivated Leadership. And Charles, this word present uh, breaks down into seven thoughts, so let's uh, take them one at a time. Uh, First of all, probe your past, examine family of origin and church history. Yeah, this is related to um, something that uh, a psychiatrist that lived in the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, discovered. It's called family systems. And essentially what he said was, in our families and in our organizations, you look at the history of that family, the history of the organization, there are some common patterns that flow down through the generations. So probe your past is really going in to whether it's a new church or current church, trying to unpack what are the, you might even say, generational issues that have carried over, being aware of those and dealing with those right up front. Next one. Revisit your values. Assess and clarify your core convictions. Really, really huge, Pat. And I, I liken this one to the difference between a gyro compass versus a compass. I was a Boy Scout. You'd always go out with your hatchet and your knife and your compass, and you were good to go. But all it took was a magnet to put up against a compass, and you would veer off course. The gyro compass is used in missiles as well as ships, and it, it no way can a piece of metal uh, cause that ship to go off course because the gyro compass is, is, has a much stronger base than a compass. So what I say here is every leader needs to understand what are his or her core values. And it may be a process of going through what those core values are. Discover those core values, have them regularly before you, review them, so that that's what really provides your true north, uh, not uh, not people-pleasing. So that's revisit your values. 
expose your triangles, map your relational triangles, both healthy and unhealthy. What does that mean? Well, the the smallest kind of unit. This is again family systems is a is a unit of three. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a triangle might be me, uh, a, a board the board chair, and uh, another board member. If the board chair, another board member, they have a conflict, and I'm in that triangle, the tendency is to bring that third person into it to solve the problem. And by mapping your triangles, it's wise for a leader, a pastor, to go into his church, his organization, and try to see where are these triangles, and to stay what's called in the outside position, where you're a facilitator of perhaps conflict between two others, but you're not sucked into it. So that's a really important exercise that I find super helpful for pastors. Search for your gaps. Discover which people-pleasing patterns you fall into. Yeah, this one is a, a, a really, really key. Um, Bill George, who is a Harvard professor, wrote the book True North, and he looked at 125 leaders, and he said that the essence of leadership comes down to knowing yourself. And what I, what I mean by search for your gaps is to really know yourself. What are your weaknesses? And I list several of them, and maybe emotional reactivity, Maybe a lot lack of strong conviction. It may be emotional cutoff. It may be a lack of personal independence or overfunctioning or underfunctioning. So searching for your gaps really is knowing what is your weak area, what is your default, what do you lean into your default, knowing those. The first solution to a problem is defining the problem. So that's what search for your gaps means. And now I want you to talk about engage your critics. Maintain a calm, connected present presence with those ministry detractors, irritating people you often try to please. This one is perhaps of, of, of the seven principles that have helped me the most. And I use the illustration of Sir Ernest Shackleton. You probably know the story. In 1916, he took a ship, the Endurance, and got stuck in the Antarctic on an exploration trip. The ship was frozen, frozen, crushed. Yet 634 days later, all of his team members emerged on dry land safe. And what they say is that uh, Shackleton, what he did was he stayed close to those who potentially could have split uh, the team unity. And by staying close with a calm presence, he was able to moderate the effect of those detractors. So I've found in churches, we tend to go the other way. Hey, I don't want to be around this criti- critical person, but I think it's wise to have some sort of calm presence with them. Otherwise, their, their criticism probably would just ratchet itself up. In other words, you, you can't run away from them. No, you can't, and, and that's one of the biggest MOs, pastors do method of operation. I'm, I'm walking down the aisle of the church, I see somebody that's a critic, I go the other way. <laughs> Not a wise thing to do. And now we come to nurture your soul, practice Christ-centered mindfulness. Yeah, not, in the 1600s, uh, a monk, his name is Brother Lawrence, uh, wrote some letters that later became the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. He learned to always be present in the moment with the Lord. And when I say nurture your soul through mindfulness, mindfulness is simply kind of a new term. It's basically uh, thinking about what you're thinking about, being present in the moment so that you're aware of all this chatter that's going on in your mind. Because oftentimes we either go into our uh, anger or, or uh, about the past, things that have not happened well in the past, or fear about the future. Whereas if we're aware of our thoughts, we can stop those negative ones before they spiral out of control. So that's that's nurture your soul through mindfulness. And now, let's talk about taming your reactivity. Apply simple neuroscience insights to stay cool under pressure. Yeah, and this one, I, I unpack how emotions occur. It's about chemical process first, and we're aware of it a fifth of a second later. Then we have like a half a second before we act upon it. And I explained that the way... Uh, our brain works is that these emotions uh, come oftentimes simply because the way our brains are wired, we're, we're, we're ready to protect ourselves in a sense of danger. And taming your activity, I think, is being aware of that process and realizing by the Spirit's help, we have that window between the feeling of an emotion and the a response to it. And when we're aware of those emotions, practice again mindfulness, practicing again thinking about what you're thinking about, we will respond appropriately rather than react when we're in a tough situation, say, with a, with a board member or a critical person. So that, that's the essence of taming your reactivity. You uh, talk in your final section, Charles, about two specific tools 
uh, for leaders, a seven-day personal development plan, and an eight-week team development plan for use with staff and leadership teams, boards, and so forth. Can you talk about what that means and why that's important? You bet. Well, one of my um, hope-for goals of writing the book, and just asking the Lord to, to bless the, the message of it, is that pastors and leaders would be able to take these principles and build them into their teams. That's the eight-week team development plan. So basically, it gives a week-to-week, over eight weeks, how you can begin to build these into your team. The seven-day personal development plan, this really comes down to building the discipline, the spiritual discipline of mindfulness. And it's a daily process, and your devotional time, your quiet time, that I found helped me, and I have some research that shows that it really, really helps us in keeping from acting upon our emotions. So it's, it's, it's a process that I describe built into just a daily time with God. My guest is Charles Stone, senior pastor of West Park Church in London, Ontario. So if we've got a group of young pastors listening this evening, Charles, um, what's the summation on all this? What's your word to them? I would say my word to them would be Galatians 1.10, which says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I would encourage pastors, whether young or old, to keep front and center and there to please him, not to please others, and to love others, but ultimately... First and foremost, I must please him. That's what I'd say. What's next in your pipeline? You got another project coming? I do. I'm under contract with uh, an, a, a publisher. A year from now, I'm going to they're going to publish the book. The tentative title is the Brain Savvy Leader, where I incorporate moral neuroscience. I'm going uh, my daughter had a brain tumor, so I've lived in this world for 25 years. I'm in a master's program on the neuroscience of leadership. So that's coming out in a year, how to apply neuroscience insights to leadership. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm so glad you could visit with us, Charles. Congratulations on your book. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we had a good time here together. Oh, thank you so much, sir. Have enjoyed it, Pat. The name of the book is People-Pleasing Pastors. Charles Stone has been our guest. Uh, We have a wrap-up here on the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. Uh, Just a reminder, it's WTLN AM 950 in Orlando. We do it every weekend and always look forward to having you with us. Uh, Back right after this. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. We thought we were doing the right thing. I mean, why go out and hire professionals when we have people right here in the congregation who have yeah. experience in construction? That's right. I mean, Elder Jones was a carpenter for over 50 years. <laughs> but boy, were we wrong. You know, I thought I knew drywall. I thought I knew about plumbing. And we're supposed to know all the rules and regulations and permits and even the laws that are required to just renovate our own fellowship hall. Now we're really in hot water, too, with our local government. And we have to start all over again. Every day in Central Florida, well-meaning local churches run afoul of local government regulations for construction. The legal process for church construction projects is complex. Let the Nemo Group assist you with this complicated legal process. The Nemo Group is a Christian construction company. The Nemo Group specializes in church renovation and addition projects. The Nemo Group will help your congregation build a wall of protection that will ensure your renovation or add-on is safe, successful, and legal. Call 407-504-6966 or visit NemoGroup.com today. That's N-Y-M-O Group.com. The Nemo Group is a member of the Orlando Chinese Network. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Well, we're glad that you could join us here for the Pat Williams Weekend Power Hour. We do it every weekend on WTLN AM 950. Uh, please visit my website, it is uh, patwilliams.com, uh, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, I want to tell you about my new book. It's out. It's called The Mission is Remission, Hope for Battling Cancer, in which I share my cancer story and uh, outline some principles that will be valuable to anybody um, in the cancer world or dealing with it or who has family members dealing with it. The Mission is Remission. It's in bookstores now and up on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com as well. In the meantime, uh, I hope you have a wonderful day tomorrow. Uh, Make sure you get your family off to church. And then uh, a great week ahead. 
the weather in Central Florida in March, well, it's the best. Spring training going on and all sorts of great things. So uh, enjoy this uh, terrific time of year. And we'll be back next weekend for more on WTLN AM 950. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.